Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. You can also find me on Facebook, though I don't really post there anymore or even go there, I have to admit, Um, but I still have a page, (laughs) and Twitter at EBR underscore VFR, where I will someday spend more time again. Uh, But right now, there's just too much of COVID-19 information. It's like a fire hose, and I just can't deal with it, unfortunately. I'd also ask you to have patience with the occasional missed week because, as you may guess, I'm trying to do everything from home these days, and that sometimes means that I run out of time to do all the things that I want to do because, well, I actually have a job that has completely kept up despite the quarantine, and this is my busy season. So I'm very thankful to have that job, and I'm very happy to have a stable income, but that means I haven't really been able to enjoy a lot of the extra free time the way some other people have. Not that a lot of people are actually enjoying that free time since it isn't due to them having time off, it's due to them having been laid off. Um, And so that is really hard. Uh, But I do want to keep up with this as much as I can. Um, I really enjoy doing this, and I think that it's helpful because there's a lot of terrible out there, and I think it's important to highlight some of the not terrible and perhaps even just some of the normal stuff that is still happening. Despite the pandemic, science is still being done. Papers are still making it into journals, and some of them are even worth talking about in the sense that they're not incredibly depressing. (laughs) Um, And so just for a moment, though, I do want to acknowledge something that I read about the other day, which is that women in science are being particularly hard hit by the pandemic because despite the fact that this is the 21st century, women are still the primary uh, caregivers for children. And so they are currently dealing with the greater burden of childcare since schools and daycares have been closed. And so women scientists have really been taking on greater childcare work and thus have less time for writing and research. Now, of course, many women across the board are having to deal with the same hardship. Now, I do know that there are men out there who have absolutely stepped up and are helping, uh, who have equal families. Um, My dad certainly did certain things around the house my entire childhood. It was not a uh, complete burden on my mom. Um, I might have mentioned before that my dad always did the laundry. And in fact, there was one time that I actually went downstairs into the basement and I was like, when did we get a new washing machine? Because I hadn't been down there because my dad just always did the laundry. Um, And so I know there are also out there single fathers who are having to deal with the same issues. Um, But there is a statistical decrease already in papers being submitted by women in science. And so really part of the problem with this is that it could have ripple effects on their careers in the future because... Unfortunately, in a lot of academia, there is still this form of uh, publish or perish that is 
in place. And so hopefully we'll be able to figure out some way to work on this better. And of course, as I might have, as I mentioned, women in general uh, are harder hit in these sort of economic and work realms, um, especially minority women, because they have the highest likelihood of having jobs that can't be done from home. And so they sometimes have probably had to choose between uh, taking care of their children and keeping their jobs. And so, yeah, that is tough. Now, I do want to concentrate on the positive, uh, but it continues to be hard given how much this whole pandemic might have been avoided in large part, obviously not completely, but in large part, if we had real leadership in Washington, and also if we didn't live in a country that doesn't believe in social safety nets. Unless, oddly enough, it's the person themselves that they're asking about. Everyone seems to want to have social safety nets for themselves, but not for that other guy. Um, and though this is somewhat a kind of universal idea, it is much amplified in American culture. And um, yeah, I think that's been the most one of the most frustrating things for me beyond just the idea that there are people dying who should not be dying is the fact that we are in a uniquely bad position based on the fact that we have a uniquely bad economic system that does not have any safety net for uh, the lower classes. And so it is very frustrating as someone who does not believe in capitalism as the shining example of a way that anything should be run. Um, and I always do try to be true to my principles uh, here. I don't make any, uh, <laughs> I don't try to hide the fact that I am obviously a uh, extreme left-leaning person, um, but I think that it's important to acknowledge that, but also to note that I try not to let that get to me in terms of how I look at science stories. Um, I generally don't think about politics when I think, when I look at a science story. Obviously, there's some, uh, you know, subconscious biases that you can't get around, but I do tend to think, basically, I tend to err on the side of, do a majority of scientists agree with this? that I'm going to assume that it's right because a majority of scientists agree with it. And of course, that's not foolproof. Science itself isn't foolproof, but that's what I try and hold on to. Okay, let's uh, just quickly note that Hampshire, Franklin, and Berkshire counties continue to have relatively low rates of infection and death. Now, this is partially due to the fact that these counties have frankly, lower population density, which is a good way to social distance to begin with. It's much harder to social distance in a place like Boston or Worcester than it is here. Um, but I hope that it's also partially because people here are doing their part towards maintaining that true social distancing um, down at the person-to-person -person level. So please keep up that excellent social distancing and stay at home until health officials tell you that it's okay to start returning to some semblance of normality. I know that Governor Baker is starting to work on ways to open up the um, 
state. And I get that, but I hope that he does not cave to this sort of ridiculous need to put economics above people and that he actually listens to uh, folks who are not, um, folks who actually are experts and are not going to be uh, having their politics get in the way of their ability to um, to counsel him on how we should move he- ahead. All right, so that's enough of that. Continue to wash your hands, wear a mask if you have to go outside, uh, keep six feet away from people as much as humanly possible. Um, all of the things that we've been talking about. Wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. Um, And so, yeah. All right. Let us move on to our actual show. And let us start by talking about Vikings. Archaeologists are making the best of melting ice in Norway. A long-forgotten mountain pass, 6,500 feet above sea level, has opened up and a host of artifacts from the Viking era have been exposed, up to and including a dog wearing a collar and leash. Melting ice on the Lendbreen Glacier began exposing hundreds of artifacts from the Viking Age, the Roman Iron Age, and even the Bronze Age back in 2011. Elements of daily travel are found along the trail between 5,500 and 6,300 feet above sea level. This includes cairns to mark the route, which are those uh, stacked up rocks, which you should not create unless you are actually marking a trail. Um, There's a whole, I read a whole article about how, you know, these the fact that people like to make cairns, they don't think that there's anything wrong with that. And in principle, there isn't, except you are still disturbing ecosystems. So there are insects and small animals that are using those stones often. And if we have places where a lot of them are being disturbed, that can actually disturb an ecosystem. Um, A lot of people don't think about those kinds of ecosystems, but they are ecosystems and they're still being disturbed. Uh, even if you're just making what you think is a pretty little uh, tower of stones. And they are they are pretty, but unless you're actually using it to mark either a route or as an actual um, remembrance for something, uh, please try not to do it. <laughs> um, you know, get some stones from uh, your driveway or something like that. Uh, not that those are generally big enough, but anyways... Don't just don't do Karens unless you have to. (laughs) Okay. Other than that, uh, they found clothing and shoes, a mitten, a variety of tools and riding gear, animal bones and dung, and even a shelter at the top of the route. The study was published last month in the journal Antiquity. A lost mountain pass is a dream discovery for us glacial archaeologists, lead study author Lars Pilo co-director of the Glacial Archaeology Program, or GAP, said in a statement. Now, GAP is a collaboration between the Inlandit County Council and the Museum of Cultural History at the University of Oslo in Norway. Artifacts found between 2011 and 2015 were documented by the team. The dry, frozen climate created an ideal site for preservation, with a layer of ice protecting the artifacts from the elements. 
the artifacts were in essence kind of freeze-dried. Now the team found shoes made of hide, a woven mitten mostly intact, over 50 pieces of fabric, a wood-handled knife, horseshoes and sled pieces, as well as the bones from pack horses. They also found a walking stick inscribed with runes and a finely carved distaff for wool spinning made from birch and dating to approximately 800 CE and similar to one found in a Viking ship burial. They also found a, I think, rather finely carved, I mean, it's simple, but still, it's very pretty, um, bit used for either a goat kid or lamb to prevent them from suckling their mother so that the milk could be used for human consumption. And this was found carved from juniper and dating to the 11th century CE. The preservation of the objects emerging from the ice is just stunning, study co-author Espen Finstad, an archaeologist with the Department of Cultural Heritage in Lillehammer, Norway, said in the statement. Tools that were broken were most likely discarded, as any weight on a long journey needs to be weight that you actually want to have with you. Intact tools were most likely lost in snow or storms. However, some of the discoveries are odd, including usable clothing uh, that was left on the trail. However, the researchers think these may have been discarded by people who were caught out in the elements in a storm, something like that, and ended up with severe hypothermia because severe hypothermia can lead to irrational behavior. And for some people, it actually tricks the body into thinking that the body is overheating rather than freezing. And so people will tend to take their clothes off. Um, and so that is why they think those might have been found. Or it might just have been something that fell out and fell down a, um, fell off while someone was walking. They didn't even notice. Uh, <laughs> it certainly that's happened to me once or twice. Um, I still, there's still a scarf that I miss <laughs> that I left somewhere. Um, actually that I left at the old Hukilau. I miss that scarf. Uh, it was actually a pashmina. It was beautiful, and I completely forgot it and never got around to getting back there to get it. <laughs> Anyways, uh, carbon dating of around 60 objects places the span in which the pass was active from around 300 to 1500 CE. A ski and arrow from the Bronze Age and several other pieces were even older. But the largest collection of artifacts came from the time around 1000 CE, when the Vikings were most prominent. Now, interestingly, unlike a normal mountain pass that was used only when it was covered, when it was not covered in snow and ice, this pass would actually only have been easily used during times when it was covered in snow and ice, as the rocks, when bare, would have been difficult for sleds and pack animals. Now, the researchers were able to use the objects to map out a timeline of the pass's use, with the pass having been abandoned by the 16th century, perhaps due to climate change-related melting, economic up upheaval, or even the arrival of pandemics from Europe. Now, another large melt occurred last year with the dog remains uh, having been discovered and also a wooden box with the lid still on. And so those have yet to be properly documented and described. So there may yet even be more amazing artifacts that will be given up by the ice and that we will be able to learn more about the Vikings with. 
Um, as I've mentioned on this show a lot of times, the Vikings were not uh, the sort of soulless killing machines that they are often depicted as. Uh, they were actually quite into fashion. Uh, they were quite vain. Um, there are stories about uh, Englishmen writing about how the Vikings are terrible because they bathe. And so they're worried that the Vikings are going to take their women not by force, but the women are going to go and want to be with them instead because they're <laughs> more hygienic. So yeah, uh, the Vikings were very interesting people, and they did a lot more than just go Viking. Um, and so yes, uh, they are very fascinating. And elsewhere in Norway, archaeologists will be doing a rescue excavation on a buried Viking ship that is being ravaged by fungus, unfortunately. And so this is the first time in a century that such a ship has actually been excavated. Thanks to the support of the Norwegian government, archaeologists with the Norwegian Institute for Cultural Heritage Research will begin work on the uh, Gjelstad ship in June. Now, researchers have known about the ship, but didn't want to excavate it for fear that they did not have sophisticated enough techniques in order to free the ship without damaging it further. But the fungus has forced their hand. The 66-foot-long ship, dated to roughly 1,200 years ago, was found in 2018 with ground-penetrating radar and is located just 20 inches beneath the ground on a farm in Norway's Ostfold County. It sits within a degraded burial mound, and this and other sites near the ship have suggested that the area around the farm was once a Viking cemetery. Last year, the team took samples of the ship in order to assess the levels of degradation. They were not happy with the results. The lower part was very mushy in the surface, and microscopic analyses demonstrated very profound evidence of active fungi, demonstrating that it was under active decay, Jan Bill, curator of the Viking ship collection at the Museum of Cultural History, noted. It was thus clear that with the current conditions situated above the groundwater level in a sandy and silty environment, wooden remains would not survive for long. Now, not only are they going to be dealing with this fungus, they are, of course, going to still be dealing with COVID-19 conditions. So, the team will use the guidelines for all other workspaces in Norway such as maintaining at least a meter between people, which is actually only about 3.3 feet, but um, assigning a set of tools for the sole use of each member of the team. So each member will have a set of tools and they will only be using those tools, uh, as well as, of course, frequent hand washing and other measures meant to keep the, tame, the team safe. Now, despite these less than ideal conditions, this is still a great opportunity. Bill notes that only three other Viking ships have ever been excavated in 1868, 1880, and 1904. And so as you can imagine, those uh, excavations were not done with the kind of scientific rigor and modern equipment available to modern archeologists. I think that there's still a lot of archeologists who would have loved to go back in time to the Sutton Hoo uh, excavation and just be like, no, stop. <laughs> <laughs> we 
wait another hundred years, please. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. Um, now, they may find an actual burial in the ship uh, because this ship was buried because it most likely was the resting place of a high-status person. Um, and so, but if they do, the remains will most likely be in uh, rather poor condition at best. <laughs> we do expect that a body was once there, since no Scandinavian ship graves have proved to be cenotaphs, Bill told Gizmodo. The chances that remains are preserved are slim, as the burial may well have been robbed at some point in time. Most ship burials are. And as preservation conditions are not ideal for human bones and tissue. But if there are remains, the researchers will be ready to make the most of their analysis. Any bodily remains can be truly revealing and should be carefully preserved. Even if there is little remaining of the body of the buried individual, the team will still learn much from the ship itself. Currently, we do not know if the ship is from the earliest part of the Viking Age, or rather from the middle of the period, but we will get an answer to that, said Bill. Secondly, we expect to be able to identify large parts of the objects put into the grave and traces of different actions carried out as part of the burial ritual. Again, with the expectation that we will be able to learn much new because excavation techniques have improved so much since earlier excavations. So I am very much looking forward to seeing what they find in the coming years. Um, because that is one of the big things is that these burials are really rare. And so they can represent a really um, important opportunity to learn more about these people. And, you know, we do have a lot of Viking burials and we do know a fair amount about them, but we can always learn more. Um, and so with these two different sites being excavated, I'm really excited about what finds they will be able to figure out. Okay, so we are going to continue talking about human traces, uh, but we're going to move back in time quite a bit to the African continent when modern Homo sapiens were just beginning to have complex communal behaviors. While well, already known by the local Maasai people, because of course that's always the way it works with these things, uh, the locals always know it's been there forever. Whenever someone says, we found this amazing thing, um, scientists have recently discovered over 400 fossilized human footprints from the area of a volcano in Tanzania. It represents the largest collection of human footprints so far found in Africa. The prints most likely date back to the late Pleistocene, some 12 to 10,000 years ago, with 10,000 years ago being the uh, researcher's guess, um, based on data, obviously. Uh, and this suggests that, and they also suggest potentially that a division of labor based on sex may have already evolved at this early stage. Publishing in scientific reports, the researchers headed by Kevin Hatala, an archaeologist from Chatham University in Pittsburgh, note that it's hard to pinpoint the time period of the prints with dating ranging between 19,100 to 5,760 years ago, but are most likely from 12,000 to 10,000 years ago. Now, of course, part of the problem is that this is just 
castings of footprints that are in volcanic ash. And so um, you're using, you're going to have to use different kinds of dating methods in order to date these. You can't just take a piece of it and carbon date it the way you can an artifact, a piece of wood, a piece of cloth. There's no carbon here in order to uh, do carbon dating. And so some of the radiometric dating is a little more, um, has larger sort of ranges and error bars. So the researchers were able to determine that at the site called Engare Cerro, there were many different individual pathways. Uh, and they discovered this by studying the size, distance between steps, and orientation of each print. They found that there was a clear path involving 17 individuals going the same way and an indeterminate number of people going the other way, but mostly alone. Uh, some were actually running, in fact. Footprints that are made in soft substrates are often wiped away by natural processes, but every now and then exceptionally Exceptional circumstances allow footprints to be preserved in the geological record, Hatala noted. The Angari Cerro footprints were created in a volcanic mud flow from a nearby volcano called Odolino Langai. And so the footprints were made the footprints were made while the volcanic ash was still wet, and when it dried it hardened almost like concrete. After this happened, the surface was probably covered relatively quick by other sediments. The hardened ash is very resilient, and it has preserved the footprints for thousands of years. All right, so how do researchers suggest that these prints show a possible division of labor based on sex? Well, they compared the prints to modern humans and found that there is a high probability that of the 17 individuals in the group, 14 were most likely females with two adult males and one young male accompanying them. The group was walking together at a normal walking pace in a southwestern direction. They suggest that the females may have been foraging and were either visited by or joined by the males. This is based on the actions of hunter-gatherers such as the Ache in modern Paraguay and the, Hadsta, and the Hadza culture in modern Africa. When we looked at comparative data from modern foraging groups, it seemed relatively rare that large groups of adult females traveled together in the absence of children or adult males, explained Hatala. One scenario in which this kind of group structure is observed is during cooperative foraging, foraging activities, in which several adult female foragers together, perhaps accompanied by one or two adult males for some portion of that time. Infants may be carried, but young children who are old enough to walk will often stay behind rather than participating in the foraging activities. Now, the other set of prints were traveling in the opposite direction and were more disjointed, with some walking and others running, as noted. No larger conclusions were suggested for these tracks. Now, one thing is important to remember. The identification of the sex of the individual print creators is based on statistical analyses, and so the researchers concede that if some of the prints were left by adolescents of various sexes, then the interpretation of what was happening would be different. However, it still suggests that these sorts of pathways may help explain some characteristics of behavior of these ancient humans. Uh, 
The researchers also didn't explore whether or not a natural quirk of the landscape may have required the group to travel through this particular area, and that would have been interesting to know about. Despite the possible other explanations for how these tracks were laid down, it's still a huge boon to our data set of such prints, may eventually allow us to help compare other ancient trackways and be able to more to be more precise with our identification of the sex and other traits of the individuals who left the prints. And in fact, the Smithsonian's 3D digitization program has actually captured each print, and a few of them can even be downloaded for printing on a 3D printer. Now, finding footpaths like this, finding traces of human and also animal um, footpaths is really cool, and it can tell you a lot um, but it can't tell you everything, obviously. And, uh, but there is a, someone was talking about a study that was done um, years ago that I thought was really cool. And so there is a very famous um, footpath, and I can't remember exactly where it is, but it's in Africa, obviously. And so what they wanted to do was they, the researchers believed that this was uh, modern, upright, walking hominids. So not necessarily um, homo sapiens, but uh, hominids that were walking upright in the way that modern humans do. And so what they did was that they had uh, modern humans from a um, hunter-gatherer group walk along um, a pathway that was uh, mud or some sort of um, substrate that would give the same kind of impressions. So they had humans walk, and then they had they asked they uh, trained chimpanzees to walk, and you could see that the trackway that was left in the ancient times was just basically halfway between the chimpanzees and the modern humans, which I think is like such a cool thing to be able to visualize just from a footprint. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of cool things that you can decipher from these sorts of um, discoveries. All right, we are going to take a break, uh, do some PSAs and some show promos, and then we'll be back in a few minutes. And we are going to move on and talk about uh, one more archaeological story, but this one's kind of meta. So hang on for that. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have 
our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. And we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And so, as I said, we're going to talk about a meta part of archaeology. So we're going to talk about carbon dating. Carbon dating is, of course, a cornerstone of archaeology. We've already talked about it today in this program. And so every once in a while, it needs to be, well, tweaked. A new calibration for carbon data is expected to come out soon, and archaeologists are very excited. The results could change the dating for many samples, but of course this isn't a problem for archaeologists because more precise information is always better than wrong information. And so uh, whenever I talk about something like carbon dating, I'm immediately building uh, in my head arguments against creationists and other people who don't believe in the basic science. Um, So forgive me if I sound a little defensive. (laughs) Okay, so uh, how do you calibrate a dating method? (laughs) Well, researchers have combined thousands of data points from tree rings, lake and ocean sediments, corals and stalagmites, and other data to both recalibrate the data uh, itself and also to extend the time frame back to 55,000 years ago, which adds 5,000 years to the range, um, which was less, which was last recalibrated in 2013. So, Tom Hingham, archaeological chron- archaeological chronologist and director of the Oxford Radiocarbon Accelerator Unit in the UK, notes that the new calibration curve is of key importance for understanding prehistory. Now, recalibration is required because the amounts of carbon-14 in the air change as the burning of fossil fuels and nuclear bomb testing uh, has altered it radically over the years. Now, there are also natural perturbations, for instance, the fact that the ocean in the southern hemisphere, which is, of course, larger than in the northern hemisphere, absorbs more carbon. And so, in fact, there are actually several different uh, curves. There's one for the northern hemisphere, there's one for the southern hemisphere, there's one for 
uh, ocean data because, of course, um, one of the other big problems with carbon dating is that uh, anything that comes out of the ocean or that has been in the ocean is going to have radically different carbon dates uh, than something that's been on land. And so you have to have a separate curve for uh, marine samples. And so the new curves for three of the four, um, I can't remember what the fourth one is, but um, for the northern and southern hemispheres, as well as for marine samples, will be published in the journal Radiocarbon within the next few months. Now, one of the major calibration points uses dendrochronology. The oldest sampled tree is a 5,000-year-old bristlecone pine from California. And with samples from bogs and historic buildings, the dendrochronology the dendrochronological timeline goes back to 13,910 years ago. They actually reported previously on these stalagmites, and so they found in the Hulu cave in China that there is a datable record going back to 54,000 years ago. So every year, a different layer of um, calcium carbonate is added on these stalagmites. Now, having this new calibration will be very exciting for people working on the chronology of ancient hominins, for example, as well as for, obviously, archaeologists the world over. Now, among other notable recalibrations is the fact that a brief magnetic field reversal from 40,000 years ago was actually uh, originally pegged as 500 years too old, based on the 2013 carbon-14 peak. And so this is a bit of a large error bar for such an important bit of geological evidence because other things can be dated based on that uh, magnetic field reversal. And so it's important to get the time period of it uh, locked in more carefully. And so Hingham notes that a homo sapien jaw, jawbone found in Romania called Oase 1 is potentially hundreds of years older than previously thought. Now, genetic analysis of Oase 1 shows that it had a Neanderthal ancestor just four to six generations back. And so with the older, older the date of the jawbone, this would mean the older the date of proof that there was habitation in Europe by Neanderthals. And the oldest Homo sapien fossil found in Eurasia, Ust Ishim, which was unearthed in Siberia, turns out to be almost a thousand years younger than previously thought. It changes the earliest date we can place on modern humans in central Siberia, said Hingham. He cautions, however, that there are more sources of error in such measurements than just radiocarbon calibration. Contamination is the biggest influence for dating really old bones like these. So the calibration won't magically make dating absolute. We'll still have a range of dates for, from carbon dating, but we continue to move closer to true dates and also continue to develop new ways to date ancient materials. So that's very exciting. Okay, now let's move on to talk about tracking animals. Science Magazine is reporting on declassified US espionage satellite photos that, while looking for Soviet missile sites, also captured animals and their historic habitats. And while the researchers have used this information to show how a specific population of marmots in Kazakhstan has declined in the last 50 years, I think it's still important to talk about it because it's a very interesting and 
uh, potentially helpful use of this data. And so photos from the 1960s Project Corona allowed the researchers to search through images of the grasslands of northern Kazakhstan for bobak marmots. These are large prairie dog-like rodents that live in underground burrows, which they often used from which they often use from generation to generation. The team found that more than five thousand marrow there were more than five thousand marmot burrows in the photos. And they estimate that these had been used for around eight generations of marmots. Unfortunately, they found that they have declined around 14% across the entire region and by as much as 60% in areas that have been converted into wheat fields. Now, marmots often return to rebuild burrows disrupted by farming, but in areas with heavy cultivation, it can become too great an energy expenditure to continually rebuild the burrows. Study author Catalina Montanu, a geographer at Humboldt University of Berlin, believes this may be the longest record of how mammals respond to their habitat being disturbed by agriculture. Using such info could help us better manage activities to lower the potential impact on animal habitats, noted Daniel Blumstein, an ecologist and marmot expert at UC Los Angeles, who was not involved in the actual study. So despite the unfortunate results of this particular study, it is a good proof of concept for how we can better manage our interactions with the natural world. All right, let's move on now to geology once more. We've spent a lot of time in geology lately, but it's there've been a lot of cool things in geology. So, you know, that's how it rolls. <laughs> okay, so a new study suggests that the largest tectonic plate under the Indian Ocean is breaking in two. The plate, called the India-Australia Capricorn Tectonic Plate, is splitting quickly from a geological perspective, but of course very slowly from a human perspective, just 0.06 inches per year. Now, there have already been cracks in this plate because it's being pushed into the uh, Eurasian plate, and so um, obviously the Indian plate moving upwards towards the Eurasian plate is what's causing the, Him the Himalayas um, and things like that. So it, this isn't the only crack, but it turns out that it looks like it's going to be uh, continuing to uh, create what will at some point probably be a full boundary between the two plates. It's not a structure that is moving fast, but it's still significant compared to other planet boundaries, said study co-author Aurelier Cordurier-Couvert, a senior research fellow of marine geosciences at the Institute of Earth Physics in Paris. For comparison, the San Andreas Fault is actually moving about 10 times faster, so it's not moving that fast, but it's still moving. Now, the movement is so slow, and obviously it's completely underwater, and so researchers actually almost missed what they have named the nascent plate boundary. However, there were two rather large clues, two strong earthquakes in an unexpected area of the Indian Ocean. In 2012, there were two earthquakes in quick succession, a magnitude 8.6 and a magnitude 8.2 near Indonesia but they weren't located near a subduction zone, but rather in the middle of the plate. 
These quakes, along with other info, suggested that an area known as the Wharton Basin was the source of the oddities. Now, this isn't actually a complete surprise, as it turns out that the plate is not one solid plate, actually. It's like a puzzle, Couturier Couvert told Live Science. It's not one uniform plate. There are three plates that are, more or less, tied together and are moving in the same direction together, she said. Now, the team looked at a particular fracture zone in the Wharton basement, Basin where the earthquakes originated. They created two data sets in 2015 and 2016, respectively, using high-resolution mirage bathymetry and seismic reflection imaging, both of which use sound waves bounced off of sediments and measures and measures of the returning signal to map the basin's geography. Study co-author Satish Singh, a visiting professor of seismology at the Earth Observatory of Singapore, led the expedition for the 2015 data set. The researchers then looked at the two data sets and found evidence for pull-aparts, depressions that form at strike-slip faults, which cause earthquakes when two blocks of earth slide against one another horizontally. So a slip-strike fault is what the San Andreas Fault is. They found 62 of these basins along the mapped fracture zone, which is at least 217 miles long, but the authors suspect it's even longer. Now, some of the basins were huge, up to 1.8 miles wide and 5 miles long. They were also deeper in the south, as much as 394 feet, and shallow in the north, as shallow as 16 feet. It might mean that this, slip, that this strike slip fault is more localized at its southern boundary, at least for now, the authors noted. Now, localized is actually a geological term here. It means that it is happening in one main fault rather than distributed, which would be among several minor faults. So it's localized to a fault, but uh, it doesn't mean that it's not affecting the rest of the plate. The tear started some 2.3 million years ago and follows a line that passed close to the epicenters of the 2012 quakes. It doesn't seem like it's yet a fully formed plate boundary, William Hawley, a seismologist at the Lamont Daugherty Earth Observatory at Columbia University in New York, who wasn't involved in the study, noted. But the take-home message is that it's becoming one, and it probably accounts for much of the deformation that we know is occurring there. Now, the fracture zone, or weakness in the oceanic crust formed not because of the earthquakes, but rather due to new oceanic crust emerging from the mid-ocean ridge and cracking due in part to the Earth's curvature. However, now that that, crack, now that that crack is there, it's being turned into a fault. Nature likes using weaknesses. It likes using what's already in place, Coudrière Couvert said, now, because parts of the various plates are moving at different speeds, the crack is becoming a new boundary for the plates to separate. However, this movement is, again, nothing to worry about. It's moving so slowly that it won't build up enough energy to uh, create another earthquake for another 20,000 years. It has long been postulated that these fractures, fracture zones of weakness 
could be the birthplace along which new plate boundaries such as subduction zones or strip or strike slip boundaries form, said Oliver Jagutz, an associate professor of geology at MIT who was not involved with the study. It is, det- it is detailed studies like these that will allow us to better understand how the jigsaw puzzle of plates that constitute the outermost layer of Earth formed and evolved. So that's very cool. Um, it is really interesting to see how that is going to play out. I mean, we won't get to see it, but to be able to see how they can show where that tearing is going to happen. Um, and so, I don't know, I just always love plate tectonics. I hope that you are willing to indulge me uh, in the fact that I'm constantly bringing up uh, stories about plate tectonics because I just find them fascinating. <laughs> Um, I think it's just so cool that, like, even though we feel very stationary, uh, we are moving in so many ways. Um, so uh, I've mentioned before, I have a pastime of watching uh, terrible uh, YouTube videos and um, usually debunking of things, which are good. Um, the YouTubers that I watch are good YouTubers. It's just that they're debunking terrible material. So I was watching um, some debunks of the Flat Earth the other day, and one of the things they struggle so mightily with is movement. They don't seem to understand how it can be that even though we feel like we're stationary, we're actually moving. And we're moving in so many different ways that I can understand that that's hard to hard to con to conceptualize. But we are. We're moving. We're moving in so many ways. We're moving we are turning on the access, um, the axis of the, the earth is turning on its axis. Axis, sorry. Um, the earth is moving around the sun. The sun is moving around the uh, center of the galaxy. The galaxy itself is moving. Uh, you know, we are being moved on the plate that we're on, even though it's an infinitesimally small amount, we're still technically moving. Um, and of course, we don't feel any of these because of uh, the inertial frame of reference. And so um, basically, because we're all moving together in these same directions, uh, you know, our gravity is tied to the earth, it's tied to the plate we're on. And so we don't feel any of that movement. Um, and so it can be hard to conceptualize, but we are moving in all sorts of different directions. And it's really interesting and fun. It's kind of one of those uh, things about why um, time travel doesn't work, because of course, you're moving in both space and time. And so in order to move back in time, you'd have to move back into a different part of space. So you'd have to be able to calculate both the time and the space um, movement. But anyways, <laughs> I do actually have one final story for tonight, so let's actually talk about that. So finally tonight, we have a story that isn't as commonplace as some in the social sciences, especially some sections of psychology would prefer. A landmark study from the 1970s on human irrationality has been replicated, and the results are almost exactly the same today as they were in the past. In 1979, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky wrote about what they called prospect theory. 
which has become the underpinning for much of today's understanding of how people behave when they have to make decisions that involve uncertainty. It would have been shocking, earth-shaking shocking, if the results had failed to replicate, said Brian Nosek, a psychologist who focuses on replication and transparency in science, but who wasn't involved in the replication. Now, despite the fact that it's so important to much of our modern thinking on the subject, the paper had not been replicated before now. Now, psychologists have known for a while, and some have become increasingly worried about the issue of conceptual replication, where researchers publish other studies providing evidence for the original results, but based on different experiments. Small experiments can produce outlier effects, which can be used to publish incorrect conclusions. Once those conclusions are in the journals, other people may be reluctant to post results that contradict the findings. They may suspect that there was simply a difference in method that resulted in a divergent finding. But those that find a similar result would still be published, which can lead to weakened foundations of new classes of theory. Now, one of the main theories to come out of the original 1979 paper is the idea of loss aversion. People are more likely to register loss than gains. For instance, losing $100 feels worse than gaining $100 feels good. Now, the replication process was spurred by a controversial paper which suggested that the evidence for loss aversion was weaker than it seemed. And so, social psychologist Kai Ruggeri spearheaded an, the, in, the assembly of an international team to check the foundations to make sure that they were indeed solid. The researchers tested more than 4,000 more than 4,000 participants in 19 countries. They were given a questionnaire with questions about money and risk, such as, would you prefer an 80% chance of getting $4,000 or a guaranteed $3,000? The questions were the same from the original study, only updated to today's um, sort of money, you know, the the sort of uh, inflation rate was uh, added in, uh, as well as adapting for international currency. Now, the researchers found that, as in the original study, most people chose the guaranteed $3,000. They found that overall, 16 out of the 17 questions were in line with what had been found in the original paper. Uh, I found interesting that one of the questions was actually the reverse of that scenario, with either an 80% chance to lose $4,000 or a guaranteed loss of $3,000. In this case, most people chose to roll the dice and opted for the 80% chance to lose $4,000. This, of course, again, shows to an extent that loss is a greater shock than winning. Now, Nosek's own work has shown that much of behavioral sciences foundations are not replicable, and therefore was actually pleased to see that, quote, there are solid foundations on which areas of social behavior research are building, unquote. <laughs> now, the major difference was that more, there were more moderate differences between the two choices in the modern replication. Of course, this is due to a pretty um, easy factor, which is that there was a larger sample size than the original paper. And so most of the original papers have smaller sample sizes. Even today, a lot of papers have smaller sample sizes because it's easier to do that than to try and convince people to do an international giant study. 
and so it's easier to find large effects in small sample sizes. And so this was again carried forth into international differences. So for instance, Australia and Hong Kong matched all of the original results, but Bulgaria and Chile only came in at 77%. But Bulgaria and Chile were among the smallest sample sizes. And so again, you find a bigger effects, odder effects in smaller sample sizes. Rogeri notes that while the replication is solid, there are other critiques which might still be able to change what we know about prospect theory. And he points out that these results show a common trend, but do not point to an absolute answer as to how people should or would behave and should not be used in this way to influence policy. Still, it's nice to see a result that mainly replicates what we believe to be accurate. Replication, while a cornerstone of good science, is often neglected, and so it's great to talk about these studies when they happen to reinforce our interest in and need for such replication. All right, that's all the time we have for tonight. I uh, will hopefully be back next week. If not, I will definitely be back the week before, or the week after, I should say. <laughs> um, this was a long week, but I managed to get this out, so I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. And I hope that you uh, enjoy listening. Evidence Based Radio is a member uh, of we'll the continue Planetside to. Podcast right. Network. Good night. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it/birdboy.